This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Our guest today is Will Chesney. Will served 13 years with the Navy SEALs and with SEAL Team 6 as an operator and combat attack dog handler. Will and his dog, a Belgian Malinois named Cairo, took part in hundreds of missions together, including Operation Neptune Spear, the mission that led to the killing of Osama bin Laden. Will has been awarded the Silver Star and a Purple Heart stemming from injuries sustained during a grenade attack. And now he helps veterans who, much like himself, have suffered the effects of TBI, traumatic brain injury. Will is also the author of No Ordinary Dog, my partner from the SEAL teams to the Bin Laden raid. Will, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure, my pleasure. Um, I'll tell you what, um, as I was uh, mentioning earlier, I read your book and it is powerful, uh, it's emotional. Although I gotta say the title is No Ordinary Dog uh, and certainly tells the journey of, of your dog Cairo, but it's as much or, or even more so about you and, and your journey. Um, it could have also been called No Ordinary Team, right? Uh, but it's, it's the story of a friendship, uh, a partnership, and a team that, that almost seems like it was destined to, to be together. Yeah, I would say so. It's kind of like a Navy SEAL Marley and me. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> uh, yeah, I, get, I guess that's one, definitely one way. There is that, that side to the book. Uh, there's a lot of humorous parts to it and a lot of deadly serious things uh, that take place. A little but, bit of both. Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, honestly, it, it could certainly be. Uh, a fantastic, uh, a fantastic film. Uh, I'm not sure if the book has been sold or the movie rights have been taken, but uh, you know, certainly I, I could see that playing out as a, uh, you know, on the big screen. See what happens. But yeah, it's, any, it's a good book for anybody who loves dogs, animals. Anybody who wants to join the military? <clears throat> excuse me. Anybody that wants to, you know, learn about dog handling, being a seal. It's got a, it's a good book. And then working with Joe Layden was really great. He helped me you know, put together a real nice story. Uh, yeah, it was, and it, it was communicated really, really well. But the story resonates. And, you know, like you said, it's for a lot of different uh, people. In fact, I'll tell you right now, it's definitely for anyone who wants to become, who has it, who has the ambition to get into the, the, the SEAL teams. And, and I kind of want to start there. Um, it, it goes, it really goes into, uh, the training and the early and what you had to go through to become a SEAL. And, you know, I kind of want to go back to uh, somewhat the beginning of your, of your journey, of your story, because you wanted to be a SEAL from a very early age. Uh, you enlisted in the Navy at 17 with the dreams of being a SEAL. And I'm going to quote you here from the book. You say, I decided that I was not only going to enter the military, I would also become a Navy SEAL. I also had no burning desire to simply serve in the Navy. For me, as a 17-year-old kid itching to leave Texas, it was the SEALs or nothing. Can, can you tell us kind of what led to that single-minded notion? Maybe a little bit about your story leading up to that, but kind of you know, what 
all of a sudden switches and that it becomes this incredible bullseye uh, ambition of yours. I probably watched the movie Navy Seals. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Is, that, is that the one with, uh, which one? <laughs> Charlie Sheet? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wanted to serve my country and um, I love the water. I wanted to test myself. I'm more of a hands-on kind of guy and, you know, it was, it was what I wanted to do. I had the mindset, nothing would stop me. You have to have that kind of mindset to, uh, to be a SEAL. You have to really want it because they uh, put you through quite, you know, it was a six, seven month selection process called basic underwater demolition SEAL training or BUDS. Mm -hmm. and, um, you have to earn your trident and prove that you want to be there. But uh, for me growing up, I don't know. I just wanted to serve and um, I didn't really want to go to college. You know, I didn't have anything I was real passionate about. I don't think I would have been driven, you know, and, but when it came to, you know, when I saw what the job was like, I wanted to, I wanted to do all the cool stuff. I wanted to jump out of planes, shoot guns, blow things up. And, you know, it was quite the task. So it was, it was a fun trip though. You know, you, uh, you believed uh, with every fiber of your being that you would in fact uh, become a SEAL. And, you know, I kind of want to, I, I want you to contrast that with how laid back you were while growing up in Texas. Uh, you describe, you know, your childhood and, you know, kind of your teenage years uh, in the book. And, you know, you, you make no, you know, bones about the fact that, you know, you weren't this like big time athlete, you weren't this like, you know, aggressive type A personality. Um, you were like pretty, pretty chilled out guy. Um, and, you know, kind of to, to go from that to, you know, just the whole mindset of being a SEAL. Was there, was there anything that, you know, kind of spoke to you? I mean, was it, was it just that, hey, you want it? you know, you want to get out of this small town in Texas and do something, you know, big with your life? Or, I mean, like, what was, what was the impetus or the inspiration uh, that had you shoot for something that's so uncommon? Um, because it truly is an uncommon calling. Yeah, from Southeast Texas, there wasn't too much in the area. Uh, I said I didn't want to go to college, but I wanted to serve. And I wanted to see if I had what it took to make it through BUDS. And they like, yeah, if I would have stuck around here, there wasn't uh, too much around to do that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was just lucky, I guess, to find something that I was so driven for, that purpose, I guess. You know, something that I didn't have to get paid to do. I just, um, I would have paid them, I guess, when I was a kid, at least. <laughs> I just wanted to go off the buds and become a SEAL. And that was it. That was, there was nothing else I wanted to do. If, if I would have died along the way, it's, it's all good. You know, I didn't want to die, but it would have been fine. That would have been, you know, I guess the way God had it all planned. <laughs> At least I had that purpose and that drive in life to, to get up and motivate myself into something, into doing something I love. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, and this is like no small point to make. I think it's a really important, <coughs> it's a really important um, uh, prospect to raise the fact that everyone thinks you need to be, like Superman to become a Navy SEAL, or at least to attempt to become a Navy SEAL. You need to be 
the assumption is this uh, superhuman athlete, you know, aggressive type A, you know, conquer the world kind of attitude, but actually it's something else deep inside that isn't always recognizable. Um, you talk a little bit about what that is in, in the book for you. Can you tell our audience about why you were able to, for instance, get through buds uh, where so many failed that you would have assumed, oh, they're going to ace it? Yeah, you know, we don't all look like The Rock. Is what you <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you look pretty badass now, uh, but, um, right, what, what was it? that you had that separated you from the rest it's the will to be there uh, i think we all had a pretty good sense of humor i think uh, most team guys think they're comedians as well you get a good you have a pretty thick skin and a good sense of humor and just the will and the drive to be there um yeah we all, all we come from all different walks of life um, some of the guys like you said we showed up they're really great swimmers really great athletes and some of those guys went by pretty quick some hold on for a little while just you never know. Some of the guys that did look like they'd make it, made it. You know, you just, but then you have other guys who super skinny, you would never guess, but uh, they pull through and never judge a book by its cover, I guess. But I would say it's just the drive to be there. And then um, the camaraderie that was built, you know, especially by the end of, by the end of Buds, you know, we're going through so much together. It was a great time. I, I got some of the best friends I've ever made. In buds. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, you know, clearly the way you talk about um, the, uh, you know, your colleagues uh, in uh, in the seals. I mean, they 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 become brothers. Um, and you know, in talking about you know what it is or what it was that allowed you to to kind of get through a lot of that, um, counterintuitively, it's it seemed to be that a lot of it was that kind of easygoing attitude that, you know, uh, allowed you to um, have things just, you know, roll off your back, right? You, you, you had some kind of like um, flexible resiliency, it, it appears, that no matter what was thrown at you, um, whereas you might think, oh, you know, this, this, t this is going to take um, – a a really uh forceful uh you know a, attack to kind of ward off what's being thrown at you in buds uh but you know kind of like you were able to take it in almost kind of like um you know the the martial art aikido where you use the force of others um against them and kind of you kind of roll with it um is that you know you know was that uh, kind of resiliency or your ability to kind of not take things so seriously that that was, you know, kind of part of the secret sauce. Yeah. I think that had a lot to do with it. It's pretty, um, so when it was time to get to business, you know, it's going to suck for a little bit. You just go and give it everything you have work teamwork and it sucks for a while, but like, it's like eating an elephant. You just take it into small chunks get through every evolution and once you're done with the evolution you're around a bunch of great dudes so you have fun while you can and yeah you just let things roll off your back while um you know everything's gonna pass it's not gonna last forever i guess kind of mindset to have and it was, well, what's the end goal 
they always had the end goal. What's the purpose? The purpose was to be there. You know, you sometimes have to go through the hard, hard times, but it'll pass and learn what you can while you're in there. And uh, yeah, enjoy life when it's not sucking. You know, I, I think there's you know a lot of people who go into um, buds and or attempt to get in. Um, and there's all this anticipation about, you know, what you, you read about the training. Um, but does anyone, I mean, before you, is there anyone teaching? Uh, is there anyone kind of um, explaining some of this to those before they ever even get into uh, uh, the Navy SEALs? Before they ever even get a shot to go through the, uh, uh, you know, that phase one before they even get to uh, Hell Week. Is, is, is there anyone explaining all these little uh, things about how to get through it? Because you still have to be some, I mean, even if you know all of the mind games that are going to be played on you, it really doesn't matter. You still have to have something special to make it through. But is there anyone or any, any course out there that teaches people how to deal with BUDS training? There's a couple of people that'll put you through like a BUDS course thing. I think Ray Cash Care is doing something like that with the company. But uh, everybody already knows the secret. You just don't quit. And if you get injured, you know, that's unfortunate. A lot of mm -hmm. some get injured. But other than that, you just don't quit. And you show up prepared. If you show up out of shape, then <laughs> odds are stacked against you. As long right. as you show up, um, they teach you everything that you need to know there try to be comfortable in the water. I was very fortunate. I was comfortable in the water. I wasn't a very fast swimmer. That was probably one of my biggest evolutions to get through was swimming. Um, but I was pretty comfortable. I had a pretty good breath hold. And um, yeah, other than that, you just don't quit. How bad do you want to be there? And if you get injured, you get injured. If you're a good guy, the instructors will work with you and keep you around. But everything that you need to know is taught there. Um, I would say show up in shape. And when I got to boot, you have to do a PRT, um, it's like a physical screening test beforehand, mm -hmm. make sure you can do, I forget exactly what the standards are. So a mile and a half run, push-ups, sit-ups, um, maybe a swim. But anyways, when you get to boot camp, you also have to pass it again. And uh, so they know at least by the time you get to BUDS, you can pass a, you can at least make the minimum standards, but you want to show up in good shape. <laughs> yeah, you talk about going to, to boot camp. That's where everyone, everyone's getting fat in boot camp. Um, you <laughs> you, yeah. you talked about that in the book. Like, there's no way that's preparing you. You actually, I think you and someone else in the book, you talk about how you went off uh, to train with, you know, you made it clear that you wanted to be in, in, in the SEALs. And you, you did like separate training on top of everything else, knowing what you were going to have to go through. Yeah, I got into shape pretty much in A school. In boot camp, things were a little slow sometimes. There was a lot of sitting around. There was uh, what we call dive motivators that we got to work with a little bit in boot camp. Okay. Uh, those guys are really awesome. Let's work out. You had to show up nice and early in the morning. It's good to get a taste of everything. And I don't know. But in boot camp, things were a little slow sometimes. Uh, but then I stayed in Great Lakes during my A school. And me and a few friends that were going through SWIC and uh, I think a few guys stuck around there that were going through buds as well. Um, but anyways, I had a few people to work out with, got in really good shape. 
I ended up going out to Coronado a little bit early, which I think it discusses in the book as well. That was a really cool thing to see one of the previous classes that were already in third phase there kind of do some really amazing things. Uh, just kind of get a glimpse into what I'd be going through. You know, you, you talk, you know, a lot about uh, the, you know, the mental toughness uh, that it takes to make it through buds because the, I mean, like you say, you got to be in incredible shape to deal with everything you're dealing with. And then, I mean, you know, certainly the, the stuff where, uh, you, you know, they attempt to drown you over and over again uh, really throws a lot of people off. But the actual, you know, I'll quote you here, you know, you talk about how, you know, weakness can be exploited through anticipation. So there's this, uh, you know, part in the book where you talk about stress and confusion combined with the anxiety that precedes it is another mind trick that Bud so brilliantly applies. The idea that weakness can be exploited through simple anticipation. Um, is that, you know, you know how, does, how does one uh, prepare themselves mentally for that kind of thing? Yeah, that was a good one. Um, there's multiple ways. Waiting for breakout, um, which is, in, if anybody else going through Bud's, there's a week where there's basically no sleep, five and a half days of, it's called hell week. Mm -hmm. That's where you lose quite a, the majority of the guys. You lose a handful of people during Hell Week. It's it's uh, one of the hardest weeks in military training period. Nobody really's heard about it, but um, anticipation, waiting for breakout, which is the start of Hell Week. Then anticipation for that. I mean, anticipation on a lot of things. You know, you're always not quitting. You also have to perform. There's certain things you have to make sure you're comfortable in the water. Make sure you can shoot a gun proficiently. So you know. The anticipation is always there, but you just try to be as prepared for it as you can. Um, looking back on it now, I think, you know, what did I do to calm myself down? Maybe a little bit of breathing, relaxing, going through the process. And when you're in the cold water, you just kind of do the same thing. Breathe, go into your happy place if you can. I don't know. Uh, know that it'll pass. Know that it won't last forever, but the instructors would use some of the, uh, in anticipation as well. Like during hell week, we got two hours of two hours of sleep. So four hours complete, um, during the five and a half days. During breakout, they wake you up with machine gun fire and yelling at you and it's your adrenaline's going. It's not that big of a deal. They, they want to try to get you uh, flustered, make you anyways, kind of see, who can keep it together that way. But then during one of the sleeps, they also kind of wake you up nice and easily. And you've been awake or uh, yeah, you've been awake for a few days by then you get a couple hours of rest and it's, you're nice and warm and dry. <laughs> and they make you stand up on the berm and wave at the sun and the anticipation of getting cold again. Right. That was, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. I wasn't surprised when we heard the bell ring a few times on that one. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's that's psychological warfare right there. You get comfortable again. It's one thing when you're when you're feeling miserable all the time, and you can you can kind of adapt. But then when you get thrust out of that, you get warm. You get a hot you know you get a hot meal, and they let you chill out in the sun for a little bit, <laughs> and it's time to go back into hell. Um, I remember be sitting down at the uh, place called they called the elephant cages, and we were eating. <laughs> We got to eat MREs down there. I remember breaking open a couple of MREs and just sitting there eating and we're in the hot, in the warm sun, the hot sun. So we weren't too cold. We were getting some food, but yeah, that's where 
I remember hear, hearing the bell ring. And it's, I guess nobody, you know, it's the anticipation of having, you know, what the, no, there's no telling what's going to be coming next. But yeah, it was always weird to me. Like, why would you quit? It's just uh, we're getting a warm meal and, you know, enjoying the California sun while we can. <laughs> right, right. Who could quit when, you know, when, you know, when it's, when it's so, uh, so amazing at that point, but that, like you said, the, the hell of having to go back to the, uh, to the absolute, uh, uh, mind crunch, uh, mind crushing and spirit crushing, uh, stuff that you get put through, uh, is certainly not for, uh, not for most. And of course that's the purpose of, uh, of hell week. Um, and you know, if we, so you make it, you made it through all of, you make it through all of this. Um, and you know, you come out the other side and you're assigned to SEAL team four. So we'll fast forward a bit. Um, and I want to talk about, you know, now you're, you're kind of in it and you're, you're an operator now you're, you're a shooter. Um, and from the book, you say by 2006, I was solidly entrenched as a member of SEAL Team 4. I loved everything about the job. It was my entire life, and I threw myself into it with every ounce of energy that I possessed. Tell us about, you know, what you loved uh, so much about the job. Well, I mean, I guess if I put myself through all that stuff, I might as well throw it in <laughs> dive in with everything I have if I actually made it through buds. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, and that and the, the guys, the guys are awesome. I'm surrounded by a bunch of pretty decent dudes, I guess. <laughs> um, we all, just being a SEAL is everything I wanted to be. Uh, they made you earn it. I made it through buds, somehow pulled, pulled, pulled it off. You just don't quit. You just give it everything you have. I was um, very fortunate. Thank God all the time I wasn't hurt. I made it all the way through. Um, wasn't the easiest thing, but looking back on it now, I, like I said, I made some of the best friends ever. I had some great times. I was, uh, I came from a trailer park in Southeast Texas. Mm -hmm. I just get my nuts kicked in a little bit every day. I get to live on the beach in California. It was a pretty good trade-off. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But then, um, you talk about how you love being a Navy SEAL on deployment. Yeah. Right? So when we get to the team, it's all, you know, we, we made a pretty good camaraderie there in Bud. Some of the guys are they're okay guys, I guess. They're some of the best friends I've ever made. Pretty ugly dudes, but you know, they're not too bad. You get to the team, it's all the same thing, except um, you just have to prove yourself all over again. You're, you're around the same kind of group of like-minded individuals. You, uh, you work hard, you prove that you want to be there. If you don't, there's other people that do, so you can just go away. Mm -hmm. uh, try to learn a lot. As a new guy, what is it, as a team four, it was, um, it was a great experience. Um, when you get to your team, nobody really cares that you made it through buds. Everybody else had made it through buds too. You're just a new guy. So you show up and learn as much as you can. It's a great experience. Um, mm -hmm. Once you've proven yourself there, they kind of have um, a ceremony where you kind of really get your trident. So you can get your trident at the end of, I don't know how they do it these days, buds or SQT. SQT is extra training they put on at the end of buds where you learn advanced training. Mm -hmm. Once you do that, you go through some, a few other schools, you show up at your team, and then you're a new guy. They don't, <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> you're in like a probationary 
kind of period. Uh, when you um, you just go to just like learning, learn all the tactics, uh, integrate with your team. It's uh, had some great times. Uh, team four, it's had some really great mentors. Took me under their wing. Um, had some great deployments. Yeah. Yeah, hard working, but we we played pretty fun too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you did. I, as I understand it, actually, um, when you were in, they were still doing uh, that kind of thing. Where you know, after you you know you were assigned to a SEAL team, you still weren't officially a SEAL. Like you know, I think it was you know you you know could sometimes take up to a year before like the the master chief kind of said um, that's it. You get you you know you're you're in. You get your trident and. And, you know, it was at that discretion. Um, I think now it's been more standardized and everyone just, when, once you're in, you're in. Is that, is that the case? I don't know. I've been out for a few years. I don't know if they've changed it up. But you still can get your trident taken away at any point in your career. If you can't perform, you can't do the job, then um, your friends let you know. And mm -hmm. you still have issues, then they might ask you to leave. So you're always earning your trident is what they say. There's a scene uh, in the book where you talk about your first confirmed kill while you are on deployment in Iraq, in Baghdad. Uh, you're on a roof handling security, surveilling the area while other members of your team uh, were breaching a building. And you noticed a guy um, on uh, another roof. Of the build uh, of the building where your uh, your team was breaching, uh, can you tell us ab about this story? Can you kind of describe it for the audience because it, it's it's a bit of a turning point for you, uh, one that actually instills the confidence you're going to need later on to make those tough calls uh, that is so necessary of being a SEAL on deployment. Yeah, I was still a little bit younger in my uh, career and. We were working with the local nationals, so he, one of the guys, not to tell really the whole story, just kind of tell it, but he called me over to this guy that's being definitely sketchy, jumping around the rooftop. Uh, all my guys were under that building, <clears throat> there have been rumors of guys throwing grenades off the roof, and, you know, like I was pretty new, but you could tell when somebody comes out of the house and they're looking that they're not a, a threat, they're just looking. And you can tell when a threat is a threat. And that guy was definitely a threat. We were working with the local nationals. He calls me over. So he says, you know, that guy's threat I immediately saw and um, took care of him. I didn't, you know, all the, what went through my mind was obviously the guy's being, he's a threat. And I just didn't want him to throw a grenade or, over the roof. And if he did that and killed somebody that, I'm not sure if I could have, you know, if I would have been able to live with that. Um, but I was still early in my career, but it was actually the guy we ended up looking for. So I was still, you know, hoping I made the right call, but it was the, the guy we were looking for. He had actually killed a few Americans and um, yeah. So you made, you made the right call. Definitely. 100%. And looking back, I was just new and it was, you know, never experienced something like that before, but as you get more experience throughout your career, you can always just kind of tell when the, the good guys kind of from the bad guys a little bit easier, but it definitely instilled some confidence. And then working with local nationals, you know, having him there to say, bad guy, bad guy's like, yeah, well, that's kind of. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, You're hoping you can rely on that. 
you know, yeah. that, um, my mind is, you know, I don't want to get in what I mean, if the guy threw a grenade over, over the rooftop. So you have to respond pretty quickly. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I did. Well, you know, and this, I guess, you know, this is a thing because, um, you know, I mean, I know in speaking with um, some of the Delta guys, uh, Green Beret, SEALs, um, you, you never really know how this is going to affect you. Uh, and certainly, um, no matter how tough anyone is, I, I haven't really spoken to anyone yet uh, that's come out of special operations without having paid a price uh, and having some form of uh, uh, psychological scars or PTSD. But they're for different reasons. And, and certainly not everyone, um, most actually, you know, can't do that hard job. You call it, you know, the SEAL contract. Right. You know, you, where, you know, killing is part of the contract for a SEAL. It's a big part, but you never really know if you're going to be able to do that. Uh, and obviously the training is there to kind of kind of where you do it so repetitively in training that it becomes more of a reflex uh, so that you're not not thinking about it when you have to do the right thing. But some of that stuff comes up later. Yeah, you just build muscle memory so you know what you're doing. And then the more you just, we do enough training. So we put ourselves in these circumstances where we can make the right calls, but yeah, I mean, everybody deals with their own stuff in their own way. I mean, first responders, I mean, think I've been listening to other podcasts about firefighters who have to they see terrible things. Police officers, they see terrible things and car wrecks and any first responder. Uh, we see our things in the military, but all, every single man that was there wanted to do that job. So, um, we you, said, that's why we train so hard so you know we, we get put in these weird situations sometimes they're not normal i wouldn't say weird they're just not normal situations but right we're confident because we put in the training and we're we're a pretty tight group so you know that for some reason there are bad people out there i don't know why there just are there's good people out there too there's good there's bad um uh, we just wanted to help get rid of the bad people any way that we could and uh, we trained and worked together and put ourselves in, we were one big family that all we did was pretty much train and other guys had families that they went to at home, but we were also a family. We trained yeah. a lot when we, when we were put in these situations overseas, we could read the situations possibly a little bit better and make the right calls to where, you know, I, I was pretty fortunate in my career, I would say, but there's a lot of guys that were putting a lot more work than I did and they can, um, they could read, situations better there's team leaders i was never a team leader but there have been guys been around so long seen so much had so much experience that they could just sit there and listen to them talk and learn learn a lot but you know the more you just put yourself in those situations the more you know and you're always um looking back now i guess i did experience a lot of trauma uh, i had to deal with that trauma which it covers in the book yep basically drank myself out of a job um it's a, it was a pretty intense job. I was a 20-something-year-old kid. I thought I was pretty much invincible. If I go back and talk to myself, I'd be like, hey, kid, learn what an ego is. And, uh, you know, you need your ego to survive. But, um, yeah, like I said, I jumped in 100, 100 miles an hour around a bunch of good dudes. And eventually, just exposure over time, I think a lot of uh, 
TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, a lot of drinking and a lot of exposure to other things, loss of friends as well. Uh, eventually, I guess the, the wheels came off is what you can say. I, had to, yeah, I mean, you, you, uh, I mean, you didn't just, that's the thing about you. You kind of, again, you kind of fixed and obsessed on, you know, being this, um, you know, one, you know, in a million uh, type individual who can become a Navy SEAL, but that wasn't enough for you. Like, like you said, you know, you, you, you know, you went in a hundred miles an hour and you then decided, you know, SEAL team four is great, but you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to quote you here because um, you wanted to go to the next frontier, right? So you say in the book, I knew almost from the minute I completed buds that one day I wanted to be a part of the Navy's most elite team. Just being part of the SEALs was great, but everyone knew that SEAL team, I'm going to say six, it's, re it's redacted in the book. You don't have to say anything, but I'm, I'm assuming it's SEAL team six. Um, and you say, everyone knew SEAL team six was the best of the best, an elite counterinsurgency and fighting unit that drew the most challenging missions around the globe. I wanted to hunt down the baddest of the bad guys in the world's hot spots. And it was no secret that you'd have the best chance to do that if you were on SEAL team redacted. Again, I'll assume it's six. Um, where is, where is that drive coming from? Because you've got, I'm assuming there are guys on the other SEAL teams, whether it's, you know, one, two, three, four, uh, that don't try out for uh, dev group. Yeah. There's a lot of guys that do those. A lot of guys that don't. There's That's right. Guys that do, there's a lot of, I don't know. It's just something I wanted to do. I was pretty young. Some guys are older. I don't know. It just, it doesn't, um, there's great seals that uh, didn't try, but um, yeah. I was, I was 27 years old and I was just basically <laughs> hundred miles an hour. I was somehow still there and I heard people talking about another kind of school to go to, to rise to another rank. And I'd been just eating up schools. I went through sniper school and mm -hmm. I was fortunate enough to get comm school as one of my first schools, which I mean, I think, uh, I'll call it whatever you want. God, luck i ended up getting that school uh some what school was that say that again what school school where you work on radios a lot of people don't <laughs> kind of want to deal with that because it's a pain in the ass but i was a new guy I, got, I ended up getting it and it was uh i ended up getting a few other schools that just worked out well together and it made me a pretty valuable asset and doing that just learning just jumping in head first and learning everything uh -huh. while i was in and then i heard about another unit that you could go to and I tried out for that I mean some guys that do some guys that don't I was just a young kid and uh yeah I just wanted to progress to the next level keep learning while I was still there I was uh, I was felt good I don't know you know I wasn't sure if I would make it but some of my friends were going and mm -hmm. give it a shot uh it's just everybody that uh is there they pretty much know you're not going to quit it's like going through another yeah. buds for seals <laughs> So did, did, that's what I, okay. So that's what I'm wondering. I mean, like, you know, now you've got the, you know, now they're looking for the best of the best of the best. Right. So now like, um, but you describe it in the book a little differently as everyone knows you're, you're not a quitter. So it, it's less about trying to make you quit than about 
something else? What, what are they, you know, when putting you through what you're going to go through to be selected uh, for uh, that special unit, um, you know, what, what's the goal there? How do they make that selection? They're not trying to make you quit. What are they trying to do? Performance based. It still sucks too. There's a lot of physical. <laughs> okay. So it's a lot of physical too, but um, a lot of performance. Seeing how you can act under pressure and um, seeing if your ability to learn and yeah, it, uh, it's like just like I said, it's like another buds for seals. It's all performance based, and if you're lucky enough, I was lucky enough to make it through without too many issues, and by the end of that, I felt pretty comfortable um, with what I learned there. <laughs> So, but like you said, like I said earlier, like going through buds, you show up to a new guy, and basically start up overall as a new guy all over again and um, just continue to learn. But I was like, it's probably still in my, I think uh, mid twenties by this point, late twenties maybe, mm -hmm. but uh, everything was fine. But eventually I did a few deployments there and uh, this just uh, wasn't feeling the same. And then what's the, is there a, like, is there a palpable difference in the type, you know, the, the quality and character or the mindset or the environment that you're in with the, with the types of uh, operators uh, that you're working with in, in that SEAL team versus any of the others? Is there a noticeable, um, a noticeable difference? Since day one, we all go through buds. We all we're all trained the same. It's all it's all the same since day one. That's one thing about being a SEAL that might be different than other units. Some other units have people from all walks of life, but from us, you go to the Navy and go to buds. And then, as a SEAL, you know, you do have different jobs and responsibilities there. And I would say the only thing that was different was maybe money and some of the uh, missions that we went on. Gotcha. All the uh, camaraderie was the same. All the guys were the same. And uh, so, okay. So, like, at what point then does the idea of becoming a combat attack dog handler become interesting to you? I mean, obviously, I know because I've read the book, but for our audience, I mean, at this point, you are a tier one operator, right? You're, you're part of, uh, you know, SEAL Team 6. You're the, you're the best of the best of the best. Um, you're a bona fide elite assaulter and shooter. How, how do you go from that, right, um, to deciding, you know what, I want to try this, this combat attack dog handler thing, um, which is even harder, I guess, but that's you, right? You're constantly going for the – it turns out that that's – even more responsibility and even harder than what you did to get into, you know, that next level SEAL team. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what inspired you to kind of become a, a combat attack dog handler? Yeah, I just, when I showed up, I was a new guy, just learned as much as I could. Uh, you're either growing or you're not. And um, just because I got there doesn't mean I had to stop. Uh, continue to learn. Mm -hmm. My buddy Jimmy Hatch, he was a part of, he was a teammate for a while. He's like, you're either an asset or a liability, he said the other day. And it's a very true statement. So uh, I did my deployment as a new guy. And as a new guy, I saw the value of the dogs. And I love dogs. I'm a huge dog guy. If you hear whining in the background, that's one of my Malinois. Yeah. Yeah, I, I hear him. Yeah. 
Um, big dog guy. I had all kinds of dogs growing up. And uh, I saw the value of the dogs in my first deployment. And mm-hmm. I was just saying in the book, No Ordinary Dog, I remember being in the team room, and it was when we were busy working, and somebody saying, hey, raise your hand if dogs ever saved your life. And everybody's in a hand in the whole team room went up. And you guys have multiple stories to tell. Like, the dogs are just a valuable, valuable tool. Um, that goes with, for, with us, with law enforcement. I mean, these, hunting dogs, they can do cool stuff. You know, they're search and rescue dogs. But I saw that. I never knew of, you know, I was still pretty young. I never knew of um, the dogs being used in the military. But I saw it a little bit at my, my time at Team 4. But once I saw it actual in real life on deployment, it was, uh, it was eye-opening. And I needed a job, another job. I'm surprised those guys. I'm like, how are these guys not getting rid of me yet? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm still here. I need another job. Uh, like you said, you're either a liability or an asset. You know, being a dog handler, some guys didn't want the responsibility. You know, being, it's a lot more to take on. Not everybody's a dog person. And when you're not being used, you're basically um, babysitting a dog and everybody else is working. <laughs> so... Right. But when you are being used, you're very valuable. And I love dogs, so I was in. And it's uh, just learning. I just wanted to learn. I, and um, I, I, on uh, my first deployment, I brought it up to a couple of the uh, team leaders. And so when I was uh, selected. And when we returned home, I went through um, a great <clears throat> training program at the Horse International in California. Mm. I went with a couple of other SEALs and a couple of Master at Arms MAs, like uh, military police. Okay. Give you Master at Arms. Okay. (laughs) There were some great guys. We had a a great group of guys and great group of new dogs. And uh, nine weeks in California with some great trainers was it was it was a good school. Um, I'm really glad I brought it up. I learned, guess I learned so much from the dogs. I mean, we can pretty much finish up the podcast. I can sit here and ramble about dogs all day long, just especially looking back on what I learned from just, like we talked about ego for a second. You're surrounded by a bunch of comedians, a bunch of other Navy SEALs. Your ego keeps you alive, but it's also, you know, it drives some, some <laughs> drives friends. So you got to have pretty thick skin, but everybody's a comedian <clears throat> to communicate with a dog. I can sit there and say, good boy. And the dog is not really, really going to pick up on your emotion. There's a saying in the dog world, your emotions run up and down the leash. And that's true. I'm sure you have an animal. You can tell you walk in, you scream at the dog that he's going to pick up on that emotion. If you're happy, you got to clap, do your hands, do some stuff like that. I don't know, whatever you praise the dog is what we call it. Mm-hmm. You know, have to, I was a pretty quiet guy to begin with. And um, it was it was hard for me to I guess to to flip make make that adjustment flip that switch and finally like hey ego aside these dogs are going to save your life it doesn't matter I'll take off my pants and run around <laughs> it doesn't matter what you have to do put your ego aside these dogs are going to save you so it took me a second to kind of adjust and be more open you have to communicate learn the ways to communicate clear and um, the emotions really do run up and down the leash. If I'm having a bad day, dogs going to pick up on that. It might not be the best training. And that's a hard thing to recognize sometimes. Even today, still, when I'm being an asshole, <laughs> I have to step back 
and uh, take a breather sometimes. You're not going to get good training. That goes with anything. That goes with your employees. It goes with your family. If you walk into the morning, I like to say, if we walk into the, in the breakfast in the morning, you got kids and you say, you know, your, your kids say good morning. You say shut up or, you know, something. If you come off of bad energy, they're, they're going to feed off of that. And it's going to start the day not, not great, right? You come in, they say good morning and you're happy and energetic and you say, Good morning and you're present. You know, it's, um, it's not the easiest thing to recognize sometimes, but uh, that's one of the things I had to learn from dog training. I, you know, I, I still, still, still trying to learn that tool to this day. But uh, looking back on it, there's a couple of things I learned. Um, the master at arms that were there, they were all former, former uh, handlers, dog handlers. Mm-hmm. So they had experience handling the dog and communicating with the dog and, doing all of that we had seal experience and it was a good um it was a good group of guys it was a cool experience to to learn from them from dog stuff along with the trainers that we had at the school who were <laughs> great guys as well little mike reaver shout out he's a he's a, such a good dude um they would just they would, they would teach us and i learned from the handlers and then we would get to teach the handlers seal um seal tactics as well and uh the mastered arms had been through a selection process of their own so they okay. um, they let their you know ego at the door their attitude we, we try to do the same and we just always try to learn from each other uh they would teach us dog skills and we would teach them seal skills and we, we, we would merge together had some great, great training and then uh, all the dogs that we had were great workers some of the dogs were um not so friendly. Some of the dogs were friendly. <laughs> They're like, you never know what you're going to get. Some, some people are assholes. Some aren't, you know, you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> right. Do you use Malinois uh, exclusively in, in the sales? Um, or, you know, I know you mentioned a few, you know, there are different types, obviously, of military working dogs. Uh, are Malinois the dog of choice? I like the Malinois, but we used uh, Dutch Shepherds. Some law enforcement probably uses... Or I know they use um, German Shepherds. The German Shepherds are real smart. For us, the Malinois was pretty ideal because uh, the German Shepherd gets pretty big sometimes. We have to fast rope and repel. Right. And, so, and then the Malinois have shorter hair, so we're in hot environments sometimes. German Shepherds have a little bit longer hair, so it just keeps them a little cooler. But they're both great working dogs. Um, if you're going to buy a, a lab or a water dog, you know, it's a hunting dog. If you're going to buy a husky, if you're going to buy, you know, the working dog, know what you're, I like to say, know what you're buying. Um, if you buy a Malinois and you keep it in your apartment for eight to 10 hours a day and you don't exercise it, right? you're going to come home to a, <laughs> a new apartment, let's just say. It, unless you get really lucky, but I doubt that. So know what, know, know what kind of dog you're getting, you know, just because you watch Max. And you see that you, you think it's be great. It's terrible. You read if you read my book and you think that you can go buy a Malinois. You need to educate yourself a little bit. I would say at least before buying any working animal. That's um, you know, plus they're very expensive. Uh, how much? How much are the? I mean, you got you guys buy the Malinois um, from out? Do you buy? Are they trained by Aldehorst? And you purchase them from Aldehorst? Um, or, or they already purchased and then trained at Aldehorst? All over the world. There's places overseas we purchase from, and there's places in the United States there's programs. 
friend of mine, his name is Josh Morton, has a program here. There's all kinds of place, places to purchase animals. Um, we had a good uh, relationship with certain trainers and the head shed that we had were pretty experienced in the people that we hired. And they would go on trips where they would just evaluate dogs. Every, every trainer, there's, all, there's multiple trainers, different people have their different methods, but they would all come together and evaluate dogs at different vendors is what we call them. Mm-hmm. and they would negotiate and they would be like this dog we want to look at this dog and this dog and this dog and they uh they had their different little tests that they would put the dogs through to see if they had the right drive and temperament and you know everything that they were looking for so we we got them pretty well trained um but that you know those were pretty expensive dogs right the more training obviously the more expensive but you can get a puppy malinois for probably not too expensive in some places. And I would, uh, you know, as long as you put in, you have a, some land and you can exercise the dog and you know what you're getting into. But um, I wouldn't say they're for everybody. That goes for any, any animal though. If you buy a Husky, there's a story in the book, no ordinary yeah. dog in my book is, well, as a yeah. kid, I had a Husky. We had a pretty big backyard, but I watched that Husky pull a, a pretty big tree out of the ground once. Yeah. <laughs> for like, spent, it spent the whole day pulling it out of the ground. Yeah, he needed to get energy. He was a sled dog, right? The Husky's meant to, it's a working dog. He had a big backyard to run around and he was bored. I guess his job and his task for the day was to get this tree. <laughs> he found a job and he didn't give up. And, you know, it's, it was a working dog. Yeah. So say educate yourself and it's not fair to the dog or it's not fair to you. You don't know what you're getting into because the dog, they, they want jobs. If you buy a lab, unless, you know, you have your uncertain dogs are like people animals are like people some are going to be laid back and chill but for the most part you buy a malinois it's going to be a hundred miles an hour you better exercise it you better put it stimulate it you better train it um know what you're getting into if you buy a yeah a bulldog you're getting a bulldog don't try to go do bite work with them yeah i mean look you're i mean <laughs> you jump out of you jump out of planes with these malinois yeah some people did I never got to jump Cairo, but um, <clears throat> yeah, but you said you once you said you looked up once and saw him above you. I, yeah, I would jump out. We would be in the you know we would all jump out together, but I wouldn't have him strapped to me. I wasn't that advanced of a jumper. Some guys were though, and we would give uh, yeah, we give the guys would jump out with him, and he was pretty mellow. But you had to have that. That's why we put him through so much training. Like seals go through buds and all of our selections the dogs have their own little mini buds that they go through as well to make sure they have the right temperament and uh yeah. right because when you get when you get them they've been trained but then then when you get them they go through uh training for special operations is that the case yeah they go through a buds kind of thing doggy buds <laughs> and then we get our hands on them and that would by I mean we all of the new handlers and we collectively go off to a awesome school for nine weeks. And some of the dogs made it. Some of the dogs didn't think we had a, we had a couple washes or, um, but that's when you, we really built our bond. Uh, we had some great dogs. People ask what the difference is between Cairo and some of the other dogs. We, um, we like to say it's like kind of having a switch. It's like with any working animal, uh-huh. uh, put the vest on the dog turn the switch on time to go to work. Nobody touches them. It goes with the service animal. You know, when you see a dog wearing a vest, if people don't know, you just, 
usually it says it on the side, do not pet. Like when we put on the vest for the for our dogs, just don't pet them. It's time to go to work. So he knows he's in that mindset. When you take the vest off, some dogs had the ability to turn that switch off and you always treated them with respect because they're all working animals and um, they were trained to bite and attack. But some dogs could turn it off more than others. And Cairo, he was pretty laid back. He, uh, especially towards the end of his life, he was, uh, he was attacked by another dog. My girlfriend's mom had a bulldog at the time. <laughs> he got bit in the arm and he didn't care. He was real laid back, mellow. He didn't retaliate at all. Um, even when he was still working, he was pretty chill. Unless you were a bad guy, he didn't love you. No. He didn't like you so much then. Don't be a turd. But it, I could take him around the command, and he would lean up against you and let all the people at work. We had men and women in the offices up there, and he could be pretty friendly. He'd lean up against you. He'd usually cover their black pants in uh, hair, <laughs> <laughs> and he had periodontal disease, so he had he put that hot yuck mouth in your face. Jesus. Uh, but everybody loved him. He was real, he was pretty friendly, you know. Everybody treated him with respect. I goes for all the dogs. Um, they were working dogs, so um, some dogs could turn it off more than others. You know, some of the dogs, if you let them, any of the dogs, if you let them get on top of you, or you know, they're always fighting for that dominance thing. Uh, mm -hmm. like, I was the dad, and everybody else was the uncles, and that was for me and Cairo in our relationship for. In another dog handling team, he was the dad and I was the uncle and we were all, you know, but there's always a pecking order and the dog needs to know, especially with the, those dogs, they're always trying to get one up on you. <laughs> yeah, you know, you were, that's what I was going to ask because uh, on one of those buying trips uh, throughout Europe, uh, when they brought a group of them back and they started training, there was this group that they were training and Cairo was part of that group uh, and uh Cairo was one of the clearly an exceptional dog amongst that group that was being trained. And so I, I know you just said that the, the key there, when people ask what was different about Cairo, he, he had that, he had that switch. That was, that was the, one of the things that made him uh, a standout. Was there anything else about Cairo as you got to know him that really set him apart from other, uh, other combat attack dogs? He's just the best looking dog. I'm just kidding. Um, he's just a little friendly, you know. Like a couple of the dogs are just a little friendly, but I didn't know what I, I was. At, uh, I didn't know what I was talking about looking for as a handler. I was a seal. Okay. I didn't have dog experience, so I had a little bit from what I'd seen overseas. But actually, you know, we we put our hands on the dogs and um, got to be around them somewhat. But as far as training and choosing a dog and what to look for, you know, I wasn't as well versed as you know that's why we had the trainers there that's why we had other people there to evaluate the temperament of the handler to evaluate the temperament of the dog and see mm -hmm. the right fit and i think they made a great call um yeah i mean clearly in the book um you start to see as you guys go because you mentioned earlier that you go through this training together they train you and the dog at the same time in there and then uh, you go back and, you know, the, the dog lives with you um, during this time, I think. Um, and there just seemed to be an incredible synergy between you and Cairo. Um, it's, it, again, it's almost as if it was a, a destiny for the, the two of you to, you know, um, kind of end up like that. 
Um, is is that what is that what you typically see? Is that what they look for? A, a, you know, a team where you have a dog handler and a dog that find that that rhythm, that that synergy. Is that what has to happen, or is it or is it something that's a bit more unique and happens only once in a while? I mean, that's what they're looking for. They're pairing up. I didn't have as much dog experience, and I needed to focus as a seal. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the mastered arms could take some of the more complicated dogs, let's call them. Okay. They had more dog experience, and they might. So if it came down to it, excuse me, I don't know. Um, we had all trained enough together to where we should be able to at least pick up a dog and handle any of the dogs if somebody goes down or is hurt or injured, right? But um, being a SEAL, I was more, if I needed to be a SEAL, I could hand off a dog to some of the other guys and they could handle Cairo more easily. And being a master at arms, you know, those guys still put it out there, but they could handle a dog better maybe in certain situations. And they didn't necessarily need to go do the SEAL stuff all the time. So, you know, right. just, just made whatever made the most sense. And that's why we had people there to evaluate. And it was cool. They made, it was cool how they, see, they saw how you work together as a team. That is important too. Me and Kyra were a good working team. All the other handlers could take those problem dogs and make them listen maybe a little bit better than me because they had more experience. Like, cool, I'm, there's no ego here. Like, yeah, um, it just makes sense. So that's what we did. We had the people that had those made, that made those calls. Thank God. So we were one big team. It all worked together. We made the decisions. and It all worked out pretty well. Yeah. And then you went out on – so – you went out on lots of um, lots of hits, lots of raids uh, with Cairo, and you know you talk in the book about um, how I mean there was a I think there was a scene in the book where you truly like you you truly see just how uh, powerful and majestic these animals are uh, when going up against the bad guy. Can, can you tell us, uh, uh, you know, uh, an example or a, uh, an anecdote of a, t that, uh, a time when really you, you saw just how important these dogs were or how in Cairo in particular was um, to actually saving lives, saving the lives of your brothers and, and, and of SEALs? Just, I mean, well, the first instance is when we lost the dog Falco, but before then it's just hearing the guys Talk, tell stories to listen to the experienced guys that had been around and knew the deal, just how much they loved the dogs. And to, just to hear the stories of how they, they were useful tools and how they saved lives. <laughs> Basically, it was cool to hear that. And then um, I would say the first instance that really sticks out, uh, there's a dog we had named Falco. And um, he who was supposed to be my dog actually returning home from that first deployment. Unfortunately, um, he didn't make it home from that deployment. He was, he laid down his life-saving arms. He was uh, shot. He was shot in a circumstance that was pretty similar to what we see a lot and pretty similar to uh, when Cairo gets shot later. But um, that was, um, I mean, I had, I had heard about it and I had seen other scenarios, but the first one that really comes to mind, I mean, there's another guy, Jimmy Hatch, I know I talked about him earlier. He lost his dog, but I wasn't around when he lost his dog, but we know how they had laid down their lives before 
for us. And uh, that was, I think, the first dog that I saw that we, Miller was the first dog that we lost that I'd seen. And it, was, uh, it really hit me hard. I was supposed to actually get Falco, maybe, you know, that didn't make things any easier, but I know it was, it was really hard for his handler as well. But the dogs are a tool. Um, he did his job and he saved, I mean, there's no telling what, he definitely saved somebody from at least getting shot that night, I would say. If not, he saved probably somebody's life, if not multiple lives. There's no telling what would have happened if it wasn't for him. So, yeah. And then you, um, you know, you, of course, you develop this incredible bond with Cairo. Um, you know, it becomes more than just uh, a friendship. You know, you felt, at, you know, you felt like he was your child. Um, can you, you tell us, you, you just alluded to uh, what ends up happening to Cairo while, while you guys are out on deployment. Um, but uh, Cairo ends up getting shot. Can you tell us the, what led to that? Yeah, we were going after a couple of uh, bad guys. They, we had some intel. And on the way there, I guess they somehow figured out we were coming. So four guys left the building and they hopped on uh, little mopeds, dirt bikes, mopeds. <laughs> uh, they hopped on motorcycles, got out of there. You tell they had weapons. Um, but they, uh, before we could engage them from the air, they hadn't released it. So we, we split off. Those guys split. Mm -hmm. We ended up following both the, both the vehicles. Um, our guys ended up making it to a tree line. And uh, we knew they were bad. Obviously, they're running for a reason. <laughs> Usually, yep. the guys don't take off with weapons and head to the nearest tree line. But anyways, we land. And um, we weren't sure. You know, ROEs always varied. So... We had to land and make our way up to the tree line. And there happened to be a fairly low wall uh, that surrounded the tree line. And um, we made our way up to it. <clears throat> it's a pretty safe distance away. We landed a safe distance away and walked up. And then there was a, didn't know it at the time, but the wall was all the way here. And maybe two, three foot wall. And it went all, all the way down. I'm assuming the left side. Um, we were trying to get the guys to come out. They, you know, bad guys don't listen all that well. Right. <laughs> All that great. Um, team leader on the ground made the call. You know, we were doing escalation, trying to get them to listen. There's different methods that we use. Eventually, the call was made to send the dog in. I sent Cairo in uh, to best use his nose and pick up on the scent where they are. And um, after I sent him in, I was trying to keep an eye on him, but the vegetation was pretty thick in the, in the trees. I lost him. And this is happening fairly quickly. Those melon walls are you know, they're quick. He doesn't mess around. Before you know it, I, I lose sight of him in, in the vegetation and I'm trying to make my way down. I saw that he went to the left and I'm making my way down, trying to be, you know, stay behind the wall low and look for him and um, be somewhat safe. And I hear AK fire, automatic weapon fire. And, and I kind of know it's from, it's not from us. <laughs> So that's when I kind of knew something was bad. Either Cairo was getting engaged or one of my guys were, uh, or one of the guys were. So I just immediately started to recall Cairo. Um, after a certain amount of time, I knew something that was wrong because Cairo always listened fairly well. He was, uh, 
he listened he listened really well so uh, i don't know how long it seemed like forever it's probably you know just a minute or two you can't just holler but we have certain ways we can recall the dog and i was trying to recall him and there's a little tone on his e-collar you can use to get him back and mm-hmm. if you need to you can give him a little little shock Kyle listened really well and i didn't yeah anyways after a couple of minutes, I knew something was wrong because he wasn't back and I'd heard automatic weapon fire that wasn't from us. So I kind of just kind of figured that he, he had been shot. Um, still calling for him, trying to look for him, but I'm still having to be somewhat safe and I'm making my way down the line of, of, of guys and just looking for him. And, and this is all happening really, you know, fairly quick still. It seems like forever, but it's still, you know, just a couple of minutes um, making my way down. And eventually I see Cairo off in the distance. He, I guess he had been shot through his chest and his arm. He wasn't able to make it over the wall from what I'm guessing. So he had to find a break in the wall or he eventually made it over somehow. And he, he came down the far side and I saw him, but he wasn't moving too fast. I could tell something was wrong. And then obviously since it took so long for him to get back to me, I just knew something was off and I, uh, I forget how close I was or how far I was. Finally ended up getting maybe 10, 20 feet. Uh-huh. Seemed collapsed. And Malinois, if you know what a Belgian Malinois is, Malinois is, they don't collapse usually unless something's wrong. Uh, I'd never seen him act that way before. So in my mind, I immediately just thought he was dead. And unfortunately, just from the experience in the past, most of the time the dog just doesn't, they don't survive that kind of injury. You know, we right. lost Falco. He died. But there are dogs that do make it sometimes. We had a dog named Axe. He got shot through his head, and he survived. Jesus. He was, Jesus. Some of the dogs are pretty badass. I got my first dog bite with Axe, and I got Axel. Here. He don't listen. This is Nala. Wow. Axel, here. Axe. Come here, bud. This is a dog. Come here. This is a boy. Right. We had a dog named Max. He'd been shot through his head, and he still worked after that. <laughs> Amazing. His eye, his eye didn't work so well, but he was a real good dog. <laughs> okay. Imagine that. Like, that's – he was – um. these dogs are amazing. He wow. saved a few lives, I'm sure. Uh, Cairo ended up getting shot, and I thought he was just – seeing him collapse, I thought he was done. I made it to him. So you assess the situation, right? Our guys, uh, my teammates on the line, they had it. They had the the situation under control. They, I knew I wasn't needed up there. Uh, I was able to make my way straight to Cairo. Um, I was fortunate enough. Another member of my team who happened to be a medic was smart enough to know that he wasn't needed up there anymore. The situation. There's plenty of guys dealing with that. Cairo was needed. He was a very smart guy. He got to Cairo probably almost as fast as I did. <laughs> it was, uh, the dogs have their own specific uh, medical kit for them. We have a medical kit. I have Cairo's medical kit. When I got to him, I saw that he was still breathing. So that was a good sign. He was mm-hmm. obviously hurt. I didn't know where it's dark. Still in a firefight. Um, so you can't just turn the lights on. You can't just say time out. 
excuse me. But I ended up getting to him, turning on maybe a red lens. My medic teammate ended up getting it pretty much right after me. As I'm getting out, um, it was just, um, I guess, it was such a terrible situation. And I really mean, like I said, I'm not just making this up. Dogs don't usually pull through on these circumstances. Um, to see such a bad circumstance and to see the teamwork and everything worked out. Spoiler, spoiler alert, Cairo survives. Yeah. <laughs> right? So looking back on it, it's cool to see like under such a terrible circumstance, it, all of us working together from my teammate medic who knew not only to, he wasn't needed up there, that, he, that Cairo needed him, to the head shed calling in, who they needed to call the, the helicopter, the helicopter mm-hmm. coming in, uh, while we're still pretty much in a, you know, it's not completely safe. You know, we, they flew in to pick up Cairo, they put it out there. There was a medic on the bird. Uh, the surgeons on base, they didn't have to work on Cairo, they worked on him. And then the veterinary staff, they helped save his life. Even the rehab facility in Lackland, you know what I'm saying? Like all the, it was cool to see all of this come together from him almost dying. And then all of a sudden he's, um, yeah, we're, we're going on to do other things. Other yeah, and these weren't the vets that were doing surgery on him. These were the surgeons that would work on you guys. So- Working on the working on Cairo. They could have said, "Hey, he's a dog." The pilots could have said, "Hey, he's a dog. We're not going to come in. We don't have to do this." They, they, nobody looked at it that way. He was a soldier. It was a. Uh, it's cool. We saved his life. Mm-hmm. I was taken off, or I was putting. I gave uh, his kit, his medical kit, to the my teammate. As he's breaking it open and doing what he does, I'm taking off his uh, gear, taking off Cairo's gear, and putting on his muzzle. As soon as I'm putting on his muzzle, my buddy has his fingers inside of his chest, deep, and it doesn't feel great. As laid back as Cairo was, he did not love that, to say the least. Uh, He's doing what he has to do. He saved him. Don't know how long we were there, but he's stuffing within seconds, you know, minutes. I don't know. It seems like forever. The helicopter's coming in. Um, I pick him up, and we run to the bird. There was a set of person on there to help stabilize him. Then surgeons, once we landed, were all over it. They saved him. They, they continued to get him stable. Then we got him to the vet in a bath in Bagram. So there wasn't a veterinary staff where we were stationed at the time. We mm-hmm. get vet. Uh, I didn't think he would pull through then. He looked pretty bad. The surgeons ended up getting him stable, but, you know, they um, – didn't mean he was going to make it. Uh, so by the time we got him to the veterinary um, staff in Bath, him going through that night, I really didn't think he was going to pull through. I mean, I, I was pretty, I was somewhat optimistic because he was a fighter, obviously, but he did not look, he, he looked like he was in pretty bad shape. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, sure. So I laid there with him on the floor all night and, he was still there the next morning. So he wasn't moving too fast. We ended up getting him on his feet and out to use the bathroom. And that was a good sign. But after he made it through that first night and he was on the bat, after he used the bathroom, you could pretty much tell that 
he was going to make it. He was going to pull through. And then, and then eventually the veterinarians were like, yeah, he's looking pretty good. So it was cool. He had fat face from all the oxygen. And I right. guess all they had to do to him. I got some pictures of that. It's pretty funny. All the air in his face. Hey, fat face, you going to make it? He made it. But honestly, I didn't think he was going to. I didn't know if he was going to make it. I, I was optimistic because he was, he was a fighter. But, I mean, he took – he didn't look too happy. Um, before he knew it, it was just a couple of days. He was uh, – we had the tubes out of him. He had a cast on from where he was shot through his leg. And he was wagging his tail wearing sunglasses. And people were signing his cast. And, uh, you know, it was just a couple of days. It's crazy how fast these dogs can recover. And say one of the dogs got shot in the face. I mean, he survived. That was a weird thing. I'm, you know, this is just in our group of guys. There's also another friend of mine whose name is Mike Toussaint. His dog ended up getting shot in the head and he didn't survive. You know, he just, you never know. That night, uh, his dog's name was Rimco. He saved Jimmy Hatch and probably my buddy Mike Toussaint and, from getting engaged from two uh, from two guys and just you know same thing there were two two guys in ambush and, it, and actually Jimmy did get injured that night through uh, he got shot through his femur which if you read his stuff or listen to him it uh, sounds pretty painful <laughs> so but he had to you know it's not funny but the dog his name is Rimco he sacrificed his life that night for us but. It's, uh, this is just one of our stories, and uh, Cairo did pull through. When, when people say, why do you write a book on Cairo? Like, the only thing that people really know about Cairo is they released his name after we participated on one, one mission. It happened to be a pretty big mission. We were very fortunate. There was okay. so much more to Cairo than that. He got shot even before the mission, and then if you read, which you have read the book, there's a lot more. We did, we did hundreds of missions together, probably. You know, yeah. a handful of missions together, I would say, at least. Um, Maybe not. Yeah. There was so much more to him at the end of his, his, of his life as well that we kind of cover, you know, it's a, it's a Navy SEAL military working dog book, but it's also kind of like a, a Marley and me. He's got jokes too. You know, he peed in my boots overseas. He ate my sandwich when I got home. It's pretty fun. He had jokes as well. He was a really good dog. So, you know, it's not all about, I, know, I guess I kind of went off on a tangent here. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, he ends up going back out on deployment with you. Um, you know, even, even after, uh, getting shot in the chest, shot in the leg, um, goes back for rehab, you know, goes through training. He does end up going back out. Um, but there's, I want to touch on a point in, in the book and, you know, we don't have to go through the whole story, but obviously it's important, you know, it is important because, um, there comes a point in the book where he goes out and deploy with you again, then obviously He's, you know, I think maybe at this point he's six years old now. He, he's done a lot and he's starting to, you know, he's starting to maybe um, need a bit more rest and become, I think, what you call a spare or something like that, where, you know, maybe get more into sniffing out IEDs uh, than, than going out on raids and this kind of thing where he's the attack dog. Um, and you got, you know, so they, they kind of put him in the kennel. He's, He's a spare. You guys are separated. You're back. You know, you, I think you're going to jump master school at this point. And, you know, that was it. You separated from Cairo. He's done. All right. Maybe he'll sniff out IEDs. But you get a call when you go to. He was still working. That's why they kept him. 
Uh, he stayed in the family is what I like to say. So I only, you only do a certain amount of time. So okay. as a handler, and then you just move on to other responsibilities. Hopefully, you know, other schools or other higher positions, team leader, okay. other than that. Um, well, you, for you, yes. For me, and then for Cairo, he was just a good worker. So dogs are just like us. If he's still able to work, then let him work. There was no other, all the other handlers had dogs that they were, they had that bond with. But Cairo was a great worker, and he was one of those where pretty much, as long as you knew what you were doing, which most guys did, because we always worked together as a big team, he was one of those plug-and-play dogs. And unfortunately, the dogs get injured. The dogs get killed overseas. Right. They're, you know, um, so to have a spare dog is not the worst thing. And Cairo was one of those dogs that anybody, if their dog was injured or killed, that could take Cairo and, you know, also keep him fresh. So I'm sure he, I'm sure he ended up working. Me and him had that dad kind of relationship, father, son, you know, that's the kind of bond. Everybody else was his uncle. I had to separate somewhat so he, so he could build a relationship with the other people. He was staying within the family. I knew he was in great hands. Right. I also had some own issues that I was dealing with and I was uh, trying to progress in my career. I went on to this school with this, one of my buddies named Nick, Nicholas Chuck. Yeah. He's a, he was, he was a good guy. He uh, covers that in the, in the book, a little bit about that, of going on to that. But I was progressing in my career. Cairo was going to be a spare dog. And um, I had to kind of separate that, separate us. Uh, but uh, to kind of, I guess, I'm going to a little bit of detail, I was at the school, free fall jump master. I had handed over Cairo. He was in good hands with my buddies. He was going to be a spare dog. I was at the school and... Might not have been the funnest school in the world, but at least I was there with one of my best friends. He knows right. what I was <laughs> And old Nick, he had a pretty good sense of humor. He had a great sense of humor. <laughs> you talk about that in the book. Yeah. Dude, covering the book. So I uh, get a call to kind of guess, long story short it. I was getting called back to Virginia and I go back into the classroom and look at Nick. He's like, hey, we uh, got called back and he didn't get called back and it was just weird because I said Nick really was a better dude than I was I'm like that was weird they call me back they're not calling you he was he was pretty ugly but he was a pretty good operator <laughs> he was he was a good guy it was just weird that he, they were but uh they also said got grabbed Cairo so I knew Cairo had something to do with it right. like, there go. but it was still awkward um didn't matter I was still in my early 20s mid late 20s late 20s by then yeah I was in my 20s. I was still young and I didn't care what was going on. I was just happy to be there and working. So I was, my boss calls and tells me to do something. And I was like, all right. Um, I hope it's something cool. I don't ask too many questions. <laughs> um, I tried to check out and didn't go through the whole process and had, ended up leaving, had a flight to catch. My buddy Nick was a big old comedian. He had jokes. Nobody, I guess, knew where I went the next day or somebody asked where I went. He told the entire class, which in the whole class was filled with Army guys, Air Force, other Navy, probably. I don't know. It was, a, it was a plethora of different branches. And my buddy was the only SEAL. Nick was the only other SEAL. Straight face and everything. When I guess somebody asked where I went, he told everybody that I quit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. So he, he, he informed me the next day. Um, 
And like that blows people's minds because seals don't quit. Yeah, so it was a pretty good joke. It was pretty good. He did a pretty, I'm assuming he did it with a pretty straight face. <laughs> but then you, you, so you go back to, uh, to Virginia, you get called back with Cairo, but no one's telling you what for, right? You get back there to get briefed and you get briefed and still they're not telling you what the mission is. So talk a little bit about that because at some point after, you know, a, a few days, they do let you know why you've been called back. Yeah, but we were pretty busy. We we're pretty used to things happening. We were used to things happening, things not happening. We used to, but this was a little different. The only thing that was so different that time was that I knew that Nick was a better operator than I was. Mm. Just put it out there. I'm not saying that to be humble. He just was. Okay. So that was threw me off in the beginning. I'm like, huh, that's weird. Okay, whatever. I don't care. My boss is calling me. Let's it's for because Cairo's needed, and you know, okay. some guys have things that come up that they need to take care of. We're always busy. It doesn't matter. I was 20 something years old. I don't, I did, I was, had nothing else going on at the time. So I was like, yeah, cool. Let's go do something fun. Hopefully with my friends. Uh, things were vague. Things were always happening. We were just hoping it was something cool. Eventually we were told what we were going to go do. And it was, you know, the things, everything was pretty much the same. Just who we were going after was a little bit different. Um, we trained hard. It was, uh, what was different about it, I would say, was the amount of intel. We always had good intelligence people, but we just. Well, wait, just, just so the audience knows, because we're just taking it for granted. They should, they should know, but they tell you and your team, and you looked around the room and you were like, this is one hell of an except, exceptional lineup of the best of the best. Uh, and then they told you who you're going after and, and who is it? Yeah, we had some pretty solid people in there that were um, very confident in what they were saying to us. So their intel, you could tell that they dedicated not only some time into it, their lives. They like, it was basically you dedicated your entire, like it's all they, you know, so you could tell they put in hard work and we were going after Bin Laden and um, it was great. You know, it was cool. Like things were very serious and we could tell that the dedication was there on their end but if nothing changed other than that uh guys made sure their life insurance policies were filled out because i mean it was always a dangerous job but on this one you just know things might be a little bit more riskier just because well yeah i'm gonna quote you right so in the book you say in all candor one of my first thoughts while listening to the briefing was well guess i won't be coming home from this one well, from what they were saying, it was a pretty high chance that a few things could go wrong. But nobody cared. You could, you could, anybody could have left the room at any point. It was. Yeah. You said your second thought was, that's okay. Your second thought was, that's okay as long as we get this asshole. The risk versus reward thing. I had nothing else going on either. And I, I, I you know, not that I, nobody in the room had a death wish, in me, but it was a. Yeah, it was a job and it was an honor. I don't know how I got selected. Cairo is how I got, <laughs> I got lucky. Um, but nothing was different. I was, we just trained hard, worked hard together. Mm -hmm. The intelligence, the, those people were amazing. The helicopter pilots are amazing. They all worked together as a team. They, that was what was different. You could just tell that the intelligence they had was 
Awesome. They've dedicated a lot of time and effort. Good job. Awesome. <laughs> um, we put in the same amount of work. Um, we had a, a site that might have been a little different. We put in a little different training. We planned for a lot of contingencies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Murphy's Law always comes into effect. It doesn't yeah. matter. You know what really mattered was the training, the amount. We were one big family, and when we weren't all spending time together, we were training together. Like, so that's what paid off in the end. And uh, everything that we had rehearsed and planned, uh, spoiler alert, one of the helicopters goes down. And the guys almost go from a near-death experience, and the helicopter pilot could have crashed, but he landed it. Not only landed it, he's like, hey, I'll fly this thing out of here. <laughs> like, Slow your roll. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, they're that good. Um, to the guys, they're so good. They just go from a near-death experience to not even skipping a beat. It actually ends up working out a little bit better. Everybody just crushed it. Um, me and Cairo did our part of that night. I mean, if you want to go and start going into detail on that, it was just our job that night. I was, I was there to babysit Cairo, put him in the best position to utilize his nose. Right. He was there to detect explosives and any bad guys hiding. And we did the, serim- the perimeter, a couple sweeps until we felt that was secure. Um, then I made my way to the inside. And, did sweeps looking for explosives, any booby traps, any hidden, anything, uh, any false walls. Uh, Eventually the call was made that we had gotten him. And I'll never forget that moment. It goes into more detail in the the book. I will remember that moment, but the job wasn't done. So that's a cool moment I'll never forget, but it's not something I got to really celebrate. You know, we're still working. I still didn't really honestly think that we had, we might make it home. It was not funny. It's kind of funny now. Um, you still had to get out of there. Still had to get out of there. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, hey, at least we knew we had accomplished the mission um, if we didn't make it home. But we still had a job to do. So we, and there's, you know, it goes in way more detail. We, oh, yeah. goes, we, like it's kind of like a scene out of the movie it covers in the book with the helicopter coming in you gotta blow up the uh yeah so it was cool to see that teamwork again like just just like wow look at that that's cool good job guys uh we had other guys on the on the, on the team different uh, not our team but different guys had to come in and help us out it was man it took a lot of and this was in pakistan right that's that's the other thing you were in you guys had entered pakistan this was on uh you know it was uh, an ordinary mission, <laughs> or something. Right. Kind of. But uh, yeah, it was different. So we had to have we had other guys come in, but it was cool. It covers some things we talk about. It's all covered in the book. It's yeah. all things are classified. The Department of Defense went through the whole thing, and they you know took out what the parts that we wanted to talk about. Yep, we can't talk about. It's all approved and all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> but it was a really it was a great of them. Um, after we were done doing our sweeps of the inside, we, we went to Xville, but God, that, that was crazy to see. And then even on the helicopter ride home, it wasn't over. At least, you know, we, we had to get out of there and it was a long ride home. And I wasn't sure we, if we would we'd get shot down. Um, but we, like I said, at least we knew we accomplished the mission. I guess when it really sunk in is when we made it back to the hangar and we landed and I looked around and everybody was okay. Like look around for a second. 
And like, really, everybody's okay. Because sometimes, like, people I think actually did get hurt on that mission. And they'll probably never say anything about it. They probably mm -hmm. took some uh, frag from a bullet through the door. I don't know. A bunch of heroic stuff happened that night, <laughs> to say the least. Um, I look around. Everybody's okay. We accomplished the mission. And that's when it kind of, like, sunk in. It's like, holy shit, we pulled this off. Like, not that I had um, <clears throat> any doubt in, in, in the abilities of anybody there. It's just that we knew things could go wrong pretty quick and we might get shot down or a house might explode or suicide vests are pretty common. But when we landed and saw that everybody was okay, not only not everybody was okay, but everybody, everybody was alive, but you know, not even really injured that hard. I mean, nobody was even injured. Yeah, you talk about how you were shocked that 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 the house was not wired to to blow if anyone you know if anyone walked in there and you know raided the place you know you everyone expected that 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 place could blow could, could just blow. We were ready for anything. We were ready to. Yeah, but then you get back. You you get back to, to Bagram. And he thought he was gonna blow up. Some very a lot of stuff happened that uh pretty crazy but we made it back and when I looked around seeing that everybody was okay is when it really kind of sunk in that everything was okay but we still had a job to do but I guess that was the defining moment of maybe I could relax just a second take a breath everybody's okay but we still had work to do after that and the night wasn't over with but we um we still have a couple things to finish up and uh well you talked about how surreal it was because you're sitting there in the um, in the hangar, and with with all the guys around, everyone's okay. Um, and on the news, you have President Obama uh, announcing to the world that you guys had just you know taken out Bin Laden. You're you're all watching this, and while he's saying it, you talk about how surreal that is in the book because you look over to your left, and like there there's Bin Laden on the floor of the hangar with his face blown off. That's a moment I'll never forget, to say the least. Yeah, man, it was, uh, I was just a poor kid from Southeast Texas. I never thought I'd be in a room like that, surrounded by such great men, and never even, I mean, it was always there in the back of the mind, and like hopefully that opportunity would come, but it was, uh, it's a moment, there's a lot of things I forget <laughs> these days with my traumatic brain injury, my TBI. Right. I'll definitely never forget that moment. How about the a, moment where um, uh, Obama, uh, you get a call, I think, from your superiors, and apparently Obama wants to meet the dog. Obama wants to meet Cairo. So I understand when Cairo met the president. Yep, that's, that was a great time, too. You might met the president, vice president. Uh, it's crazy. It was, all, it was good. We had the muzzle on him just in case. Well, hey, no, that would that wouldn't turn out so well. But Cairo was always friendly, and they they had a great time meeting him. That whole event was, yeah, it's hard to even put into words. Um, it's a moment I'll never forget. Watching him address the country, and you know he could articulate himself fairly well. <laughs> no matter what you can say about him, it's just I remember him with that speech. It was an amazing speech, and then knowing it was done and being surrounded by that group of guys. It was, uh, it was surreal. Yeah. And, uh, 
after he got done addressing the nation to see Americans too come together, that was really cool. Um, yeah, it was, it, I mean, it, it was an amazing, um, an amazing time. Uh, I mean, for you guys, it mu you know, it must have been uh, just an incredible feeling having accomplished something that uh, historic. But even for the, you know, everyone took, every American took pride um, in, in what you guys had accomplished. So it was kind of shared in that sense. Uh, but then now I want to, I want to talk about, um, you know, the price because for, you know, for everything that you guys risk, uh, life, limb, um, you know, for serving our country, uh, again, going through all of this doesn't come without a cost. And you talk about in the book, um, I think where things, you know, really start to come to a head for you, um, there's two incidents. The, the first one is extortion 17, uh, the downing of the helicopter, uh, that carried so many of your brothers, uh, from, uh, from SEAL team, I think it was SEAL team six. It may have been 25 SEALs, uh, if I remember that correctly, were on that, uh, were on that flight that got shot down, uh, by an RPG by the, uh, the Taliban. And, um, you know, that, that affected you, 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 you know, I guess how, how did, how did you deal with that? You know, how did you deal with your grief and how, how did that manifest itself? I think it was a lot. There was throughout the whole career. I lost one of my friends, Clark Schwedler on my first deployment. He died on my father's birthday. And then we had another, um, Helicopter get shot down, Operation Red Wings. Um, that was, you know, still fairly new at the point, but that was, you know, it's lost a lot of your teammates. Uh, in extortion, I knew a few of those guys a little more. And it was, you know, they're all, they all started to add up. You know, none, none of them are easy. There was other losses that we had to deal with as well. But I would say extortion... Uh, I knew more, maybe more of the guys on there a little closer. Um, mm -hmm. It was still always a hard hit. That's when my hair fell out for the first time. Uh, so looking back, you know, I, I had suffered a couple of TBIs and my brain wasn't functioning so well. But when it's your own brain, it's kind of hard to figure it out. And it's not funny. I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's kind of, I can't even describe it. It's your own brain, so figure it out. But I can't, it's my brain. So you're like, you know something's off. And then maybe you think you're just making it up. Maybe you're, you're also working. I'm working. I don't want to stop. I'm not going to say anything because I want to keep working. I'm still having fun. I'm still with my friends. I just after extortion, I saw my hair fall out. But it was actually kind of looking back on it. It was a joke. <laughs> Everybody's comedian. Guys would poke me in my bald spot during muster, and they'd play with my bald spot. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> comedian. And we're being serious, like the uh, guys up there talking, and you know everybody's we're, we're listening. But if people saw a, a weakness or a vulnerability, like got guys making fun of me, like, "Hey, come over." <laughs> <laughs> I, sh I literally went home and shaved my head that night. But it was alopecia; big chunks of my hair were falling out. I was a naive twenty-eight. I don't know how old I was at the time. Mm -hmm. I was fun. I was having fun working. And the loss of my friends was not easy, but I didn't really deal with it properly, I guess. I don't know. Um, I was working. Everybody was dealing with the loss. Um, 
So looking back on it now, though, it happened after my buddy Nick died as well. Hair fell out again. So it's not that hard to look back on it and kind of figure it out. Alopecia, they say, is stress-induced or hereditary. And my father is not bald yet. <laughs> no. uh, it wasn't that hard to figure out. Plus booze on top of that, I self-medicated for a while. In, in the beginning, we used it as, we used to have fun. We used it as camaraderie. Yep. It, was, it was okay. Maybe I had, maybe I drank a little more than I should when I was a kid anyways. I don't know. I'm not judging. I'm not just being honest. Eventually, it turned into a problem. My hair fell out a few times and I just knew something was wrong. But um, I had really good uh, leadership. And they saw that something was off. I wasn't the same person. I wasn't functioning. And they, they basically did everything that they possibly could. They put me through different programs, whether it's rehab, through the Navy, through um, different modalities. They had uh, float tanks and different things. So my, but my friends talked to me, pulled me off to the side. It just wasn't clicking. I was a 28-year-old Navy SEAL whose ego was out of control. <laughs> and it's your own brain that's messed up. And I'm like, I'm fine. <laughs> what are you talking about? Your hair fell out. And everybody's actually hair did fall out. So when I brought it up, other guys had alopecia too. Like most guys had it in their beard. So like, yeah, I get it in my beard. You're we're working, everybody's happy, but looking back on it now, it's like, hey, kid, your, your hair's falling out. Um, other people that were in charge of me saw that. They tried to help me, and I, they did everything they possibly could, but I eventually started to medically out-process out the Navy, medically retired, however you want to call it. I medically retired from the Navy after well, yeah. of trying to fix. The wheels fell off. <laughs> Nobody well, on, to on top of all that grief, you know, you get the uh, you get hit with a grenade close enough to you that you're you know now you've got this massive injury that really sets off the TBI. Um, point was a, the, the migraines after that, and you talk all about it in the book. Uh, it was a, I mean I, I it was shocking honestly to learn about how much you could end up going through no physical injury. You, you know, I mean, I, I mean, you'd get shrapnel in your ass, obviously. Uh, but the, the injury to your brain manifested later on with these insane migraines that you talk about in the book that pushed you to the brink. So, yeah, but I mean, that's in my head. That's me. The physical symptoms to me were my hair falling out, my fingernails falling out. And I kind of look back on it and it sucks that it happened, but I thank God that it did because I might've thought I was going crazy. Literally, and I hear other first responders who have traumatic experiences, and they everybody deals with their stuff in their own ways. And just because you can't see the physical symptoms, for me, I I, I did see them in little ways by my hair falling out, and I look back on it, and I'm thank God because it's like sort of a physical symptom. I mean, the migraines are a physical symptom, but it's like, am I just going crazy? Right. Am, I, am I really forgetting everything? <laughs> but my hair fell out. Like, oh, yeah, that's happening. Okay. So immune system attacking yourself. There's guys that don't have any of that, that the wheels just kind of come off and they, um, 
yeah, they just start becoming a different person. So, you know, I think it, I wanted to, you know, mention, a, I want to quote you from the book because this goes on for a long time. I mean, this isn't like six months. I mean, this goes on and on. And how long? It was a process. I mean, we, like the whole career I saw, yeah, it all adds up. It all accumulates. Yeah. Right? All the concussive blasts that I was exposed to and then plus the loss of some friends and then maybe the grenade and injury. Yeah, that was probably the tipping point. And then, it all accumulated. It wasn't a quick thing. And then we, oh, the recovery process was in the Navy. That was a whole situation that took years. Right. Out of the military, that was years. And I almost, I mean, I don't even know how I'm still here. Well, I, I, you know what? Exactly. I, and, and I think, well, I, this is the question because, as you said in the book, multiple deployments, injuries, brain trauma, migraines, PTSD, depression, the endless pushing of pills became dispiriting, exhausting, debilitating. I tried every type of migraine medication you can imagine, psychiatric meds, a oh, few the pushing. I asked for the pills because I knew something was off. I wanted it. And then they, they provided, but it wasn't the right modality. So right. Fine. We went through that phase and it didn't work. Eventually it was my time to step back. I went through the process of that. And then now that I'm out of it, there's other modalities out there that I've found that, that have helped. So they did everything for me that they could. And ultimately with the, <laughs> but what, what did help God, like, bringing it all back to sum it all up it's a higher power however you want to kind of look at it but there's some brain injury and some other stuff but looking back on it it's a it's a it's an accumulation of all a whole bunch of different things and it's brain health and it's personal stuff but i yeah you also but what definitely did work for you was cairo and another thing great people my girlfriend the time helped me get through some terrible times. Um, my teammates helped me get through some things. Cairo helped me get through their great modality. Uh, there's a bunch of brain health stuff. I said, I know I'm just kind of blowing through this really quickly. We can talk about any one of these subjects all day long. But I was very fortunate. I went from almost dying, and there are people that are committing to suicide. You know, I never uh, stuck a gun in my mouth, but I was basically killing myself with alcohol. I had some good people that stuck by me. Eventually I made it to some brain treatment places. Mm -hmm. That was like one of my first steps. I mean, it's, it's just, it was a process. This took years. Um, I didn't reach out to anybody. I kind of thought I was still okay. <laughs> I thought I was okay. And I got up to 250 pounds and I was a working alcoholic and, uh, and I wasn't okay. Uh, Finally, I secluded and took one of my best friends. His name is Jared Shaw. He reached out, brought me to a first brain treatment place. And uh, that was kind of, you know, I, I had done some things, maybe intermittent fasting. I'd listened to some podcasts and started learning about different things. But he, my best friend Jared brought me to one of my first brain treatment places and started cleaning up my diet and started learning about different modalities. So I think we all go through our ups and our downs. We all have all of our different life experiences. This is just my experience. And we all go through our stuff. That was my tough time. I had good people to help me. Eventually, I started using these modalities and uh, it was a process, but I'm feeling better these days to say the least. But Transitioning out of the Navy was pretty tough and I got 
I got pretty close to death on that. I would say, um, yeah, but I had some good people stick by me. And took a long time. And I'm still working through a lot of things still, but uh, definitely feeling better. Definitely feeling a lot better these days. And that's one of the reasons why tell, telling the book, it's a, it's a win-win in my, in my eyes. I get to tell Cairo's story, which is a huge part of history. I love talking about my dog. I don't love talking about myself so much. <laughs> Tells his story. It brings attention to the foundations that uh, give back to the dogs because they do do amazing things for us. And it also allows me to tell a little bit about my own personal story. And if that helps somebody that listens to it, then that would be great. That's, that's powerful. Um, you know, and thank God that, you know, you're starting, you know, you're, over this time and you know, going through all of this process, you know, you, you coming to coming to uh, find some relief. Um, but cer certainly, um, you express how how important um, some of these things were in the book. The treat, you know, the, some of those new modalities, some of the brain stimulation. Um, you know, your uh, your girlfriend, um, and also. Cairo and and the, you talk about unfortunately because of his incredible story and because he was Cairo it was inc to get him back into your life and you know to have him live with you um, as he grew older and as you were going through a lot of your stuff especially how how um, how good he was for your condition and how much it helped to have him around you when you're going through these tough times. It was a, an incredibly arduous process to get to adopt Cairo out of the military. I think it all worked out in perfect timing. Um, these are working dogs. They don't just go to any home. You have to evaluate where they're going. You evaluate the personality of the dog and where they're going. But let's bring it back. It all worked out. Keep plan. Uh, I bring it back to God. Like I thank God all the time because if I was still working as a seal, they wouldn't have given me Cairo. I was busy. <laughs> I was gone. He stayed within the family that I was in. He just was a spare dog. So I still was around him all the time. Uh, he was in good hands. Mm -hmm. All the time I started dealing with my own things and going through my retirement process. He was getting old, was becoming nine, eight, nine. Uh, I put in the paperwork, they have to do their due diligence to make sure, you know, I was talking with Mike Rutland the other day, some of these dogs can't go to homes and people can't understand why. It's because they're working dogs. Some of these dogs, working dogs are attack dogs. They can't go to a home full of children. Gotta wait for the, the Navy sometimes, you know, it's a process. They don't always work fast. The place where I was at, there's important things happening that people were busy. Nothing's fast usually anyways. Um, eventually the call was made to get Cairo home but, you know we had it, our, our hiccups here and there but it worked out to be perfect timing because I was coming to the end of my career and Cairo was coming to the end of his career I would put in the paperwork mm -hmm. eventually they saw that I was able to take care of him and I'm really glad I mean I thank God just to be there for him towards the end was really important well, you talk about it in the book, you know, for everything that Cairo endured, um, 
he also paid a price, right? You talk about how he had his own type of PTSD. Yeah, he went through a pretty tough time. I'm not going to spoil the book too much, but his end of life was not the best. We did everything we could for him, and it was pretty rough. I'm just glad, excuse me, glad I was able to be there for him. I mean, not that any of my other teammates wouldn't have taken good care of him, but he was pretty important to me. He was like a kid, yeah. right? He had been shot for us. He did a lot for me. It was good to be able to take care of him towards the end of his life. It was good for my well-being too because I wasn't I wasn't doing so good. So, I mean, if you put yourself like think about the dog you have at home, everybody loves their dog. They have mm -hmm. service animals for a reason. I mean, it might not be a dog. It might be your cat. It might be your pig. It might be your parrot. I don't know. Whatever makes you happy. Whatever floats your boat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love Cairo. I love dogs. We had been through a couple of things together. It was good for my mental well-being, I would say, to have him home. And I, like I said, thank God all the time. It was, I wasn't the best that I was in such a bad place. But it all just worked out to where, yeah, it all just ended up working out, I guess. Is there a foundation uh, that you want to mention uh, where anyone that is experiencing TBI or any of the issues that you've gone through can get help where they may not be aware, um, can offer some, some of the relief you're, you've experienced? Uh, there's a lot of foundations out there. There's a lot of great people. Um, the ones that I know of are mostly SEAL based. Uh, there's multiple. And I know Marcus Luttrell has a foundation. Um, my buddy of mine, Johnny Wilson, SEAL Future Phone Foundation, uh, Navy SEAL Foundation. There's all kinds of foundations out there. There's dog foundations. Um, Spikes Canine Fund with Jimmy Hatch and Mike Ritland, John Devine, they have great, and there's, there's a bunch, there's so many, but then that's just us and that's just the SEAL side. I mean, I'm just one dog handler, handler and me and Kyra were just one team. There's so many other, it was just, it's an honor to be able to tell this one story, but there's, there was other handlers and people mm -hmm. in the community alone that got to do great things and I mean that I mean think about the law enforcement world think about the whole dog world any working dog I mean it's just this is just one story and it just kind of if you do a little bit of research and <laughs> do a little bit of vetting there's a lot of great people out there and I like to say that it, so that's you know dog side and in person side I didn't reach out I self secluded whatever you want to call it um Thought I was doing okay and I wasn't. So I tell people to, uh, you know, reach out if you think you have something going on. And if you don't, it's understandable. So reach out to a friend. Uh, could be just that one phone call. I'll tell you what, um, well, uh, your story and Kyra's story um, is. Uh, incredibly powerful it's it's a it's it's a wonderful story um and obviously like life it has incredible highs and lows and ups and downs uh but uh, i think both you and cairo uh truly exceptional uh so i want to thank you so much for your service uh thank you for being on the show um i i recommend so highly that anyone whether you love dogs or you know or not whether you're interested in uh reading uh, an incredible book um to pick up no ordinary dog 
Uh, it's it's a emotional and compelling story. Uh, where can our audience um, uh, find out more about uh, you know about you and uh, about your times? I know you're po- you're always posting pictures of Cairo back in the day. Uh, some, there's some great stuff you put up, uh, as well as the the dogs you have now. Where can uh, our audience find you if they're, if they're interested in learning more? Uh, no Ordinary Dog Book on Instagram and Facebook is the uh, handle. I have my own personal page as well. It's Will Cheese with three E's. And um, they get the books, hopefully anywhere books are sold online. Yeah, it's, uh, but the, it's the easiest way to, I guess, track me down is Instagram or Facebook. No Ordinary Dog Book. And you can't miss the book. It's got Cairo's face. <laughs> taking up the whole cover. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, we also have a, another book. So there's a young reader's adult version of the book called Warrior okay. Dog out there. So for, you know, young readers that it takes out, not that there's, it's like, takes out all the stuff that you don't want a child to read. There's, it's not that the book is really gory or all about that. There's some hardcore stuff in it. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a war book that is around a bunch of sailors. <laughs> there might be a few cuss words in there. <laughs> it takes out you know all the bad parts so it's a young adult reader version okay it's really good so when i was at um i donated cairo's vest to the 9-11 museum which was an honor to do while i was there one of the guys helped kind of explain things i didn't realize number one that 9-11 was so long ago and a lot of people children these days don't even know what that is and they come to the museum to I'm like wow yeah it has been a while also, the best way for a kid to relate is through certain, through certain items, whether it's like the boots or a helmet, whether it's firefighters or any first responder, military, and, uh, and any animal stuff. So it was cool to kind of hear him say that, you know, dogs might be able, or children might be able to like pick up a little bit of the story and what really soak it in through Cairo's vest and, you know, stuff like that. And I guess they saw that with the, the book as well, that sh- kids might be able to learn from. I mean, there's so much, as I said, you can learn from No Ordinary Dog, the actual book, but I mean, kids want to learn what dad does for a living or just about the military in general, what dogs do for the military. I think it's just, a, it's, a, it's a great story. I'm then, pretty biased, but yeah. I'm the movies, the movies are, are, are pretty good to go so I, I can't complain you know, and, that's have, cool. and what's it called warrior dog warrior dog is the young adult reader version and so okay. far it seems to be enjoying we only had one shot at it and uh, it's really good to get all the good feedback saying that uh people are enjoying it so i'm happy absolutely fantastic well thank you so much thank you appreciate it yeah i really appreciate you having me on all right you take care all right. you take care god bless you.